Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to remind you all about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're so grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, then now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, a new wave of COVID authoritarianism, the hounding of JK Rowling, the cricket racism scandal, and the near cancellation of Nadia Murad. So Europe has been struck by another nasty wave of COVID and many countries are tightening their restrictions in response. A lot of eyes are on Austria in particular, because in the space of about a week, it's imposed this unprecedented uh, lockdown for the unvaccinated, which quickly became a general lockdown for all citizens. And now it's become the first European country to plan essentially compulsory vaccinations. I mean, this is quite worrying, isn't it, Tom? As you wrote about on Spike this week, it feels like we're entering a new phase of COVID authoritarianism. Austria blazing the trail that you Mm. worry that other countries are going to follow, particularly as they're dealing with this new wave of infections. There's already some evidence that in Germany, as you've pointed out, that officials are looking to those policies, both this um, lockdown just for the unvaccinated as well as compulsory vaccination potentially. And it seems like, if nothing else, just to cover up for their own inability to get a hold on this pandemic, to convince vaccine sceptical or overcome genuine kind of anti-vax sentiment within their own populations. They've been again, are kind of compelling because they can't persuade. Yeah. And it just seems such a terrible road to go down. I mean, first of all, just for civil liberties, of course. I mean, something like compulsory vaccination, criminalising people, in effect, um, for refusing to get vaccinated. This is an incredible assault on bodily autonomy, and we can't see it as anything other than that. And then also, it's just in terms of trying to grapple with the problem that many of them are dealing with, which is in some cases very significant pockets of anti-vax sentiment. These moves seem to be almost designed to burnish the narrative of the anti-vaxxers yeah. in its more extreme forms to suggest that this is really about something else. This is really about you know ushering in some sort of neo-fascistic arrangement, some sort of new authoritarianism as well. All of this seems designed to inflame those kinds of tendencies. So even if they're successful, in terms of basically using the kind of um, strong arm of the state to try and force people to get vaccinated. The consequences of that could be really quite dire for trust in public institutions and and for inflaming rather than dealing with and overcoming anti-vax tendencies and sentiments. So it's a a real horror show. And the worry you have is that rather than looking to Austria as a cautionary tale, as a really alarming development, a lot of policymakers and political leaders across Europe are going to be start to look at it as something of a 
example to follow because that's been the story throughout this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you suggest, Tom, the response has been worrying from those who are sceptical about the vaccine. They've, you know, instantly seized on comparisons with the 1930s, with Nazism, with with fascism, um, which are, you know, offensive comparisons. They're not they're they're not right. This is a really a new kind of authoritarianism. It's an authoritarianism that's based on trying to save lives around safetyism, this mm. kind of new ideology. Um, and it's highly technocratic. It isn't, um, it really isn't the kind of fascism of old, but at the same time, you can see how compulsory vaccination always provokes this kind of response. There are so many kind of historical examples of, um, you know, forced vaccination basically leading to riots and things like that. There have been huge protests across Europe quite, you know, in some ways, understandably, even if their kind of message is is wrong-headed. I mean, Ella, what have you made of it? Well, it's been, as Tom mentions, it's been, I think, shocking that more people haven't come out, more, you know, commentators, particularly in the UK, and politicians haven't come out and said, this is just way beyond the line. Mm-hmm. Forcing someone to have a vaccine is not the way to go. Tom mentioned body autonomy. I think, is it in Austria that there's the um, introduction of £3,000 fines that's going to and, be... And these fines can become prison sentences. Yes. So so it isn't it isn't just, uh, you know, with those kind of varying levels of the of the kind of vaccine mandate. So there's, oh, you won't be allowed, and it goes from you won't be allowed in a cafe, yeah. oh, you won't be allowed to work here, to now you're going to be put in jail. Um, and it is hard to argue argue with the it's getting harder to argue with the anti-vaxxers or the conspiracy theorists because a lot of this extreme stuff that it seems incredibly extreme is coming true it's also really shocking that european nations you know austria germany and france and places that are kind of toying with the idea of compulsory vaccinations or at least have enforced some level of vaccine mandate are the same countries and in particular happened in europe that basically spread fake news about the vaccines way yeah. back when they were first being rolled out at the start of the year. Uh, I mean, we covered on this podcast and elsewhere on Spike the fact that in Germany and France, you had political leaders, political leaders within the European Union coming out and saying, do not take AstraZeneca, yeah. do not take this jab, despite the fact that it was completely safe and they were just being uh, hysterical. And we see the comparison with the UK in which, for once, the government did well and pushed on with the vaccine programme and didn't wasn't coercive, or at least it might be threatening to now, but up until so far hasn't been. And we have quite good vaccination rates in the UK and yeah. we're not um, at a very serious level and we're looking at, you know, fingers crossed, a relatively positive Christmas. It's a completely different picture to those in European nations. And now that's not to say that everyone has, um, you know, taken the advice and decided to, that they're, they're set against AstraZeneca for those reasons. But if you, you mentioned trust, if you are have already set the groundwork for a very low level of trust in a yeah. society, and then you then come in and say, oh, we failed to convince you because of our own screw up, now we're going to force you, what's that going to do for a future of trust in, in a population? Yeah, exactly. And and there, there is a short-sightedness to this as well. I mean, this is not going to be the only health disaster ever. There, there, will, be, there will be future pandemics, there will be future outbreaks of disease that will require governments and public health bodies to persuade people Mm. to get vaccinated or take certain protective measures. And they're just burning through that trust and it's really dangerous. I think you've written about this, but some of the anti-vax sentiment in France was bred of a lot of kind of prior health scandals and lack of trust in these institutions. That's that's really important. I think your point about this being something new and distinct is really crucial because it's definitely been true that throughout this pandemic um, in the nominally free West, the unthinkable quickly became 
very much thinkable time and time again. I mean, remember back at the start of all of this, when all of those tales from Wuhan were coming out. Now, granted, we never, you know, welded people into their flats and so forth, but the kind of mass shutting down of society, just that complete suspension of civil liberties, uh, we we looked upon them as if they'd gone completely mad, or at least if they were just doing um, what that society believes to be appropriate, which we would never believe to be appropriate. But what we've seen, and it's been clear that it's been bubbling away for some time, is that this concept of safety now trumps everything else, Mm. not just at the height of the pandemic, but throughout the entire pandemic, that any concern about civil liberties, about democratic accountability, about bodily autonomy can just easily be jettisoned. Um, And I think even in the height of the crisis, when it was clear that drastic action had to be taken, the fact that there wasn't even any debate about the most legitimate liberal way in which this could be done, in which safeguards could be introduced, Mm. in which you could rely as much as was possible in the teeth of a very real health crisis on people to voluntarily do the right thing. I mean, that was just presented as ridiculous yeah. <laughs> at the start of all of this. So I think coming out of this, we, there's generally some searching questions have to be asked about the fact that whilst um, Europe and America and many other countries will pride themselves on being liberal democracies, that we were so willing to just jettison so many of those principles in the midst of this crisis, that can't but cast a very long shadow in the years ahead. And I think it's about time that we started understanding this new this new authoritarianism on its own terms precisely so that we can challenge it rather than indulging in some slightly kind of ahistorical comparisons, I think. Absolutely. And Ella, you, you kind of um, alluded to this. I mean, the, there's a different, there's something different going on in England, which is quite good. The government seems to be almost holding a line, unlike any others in terms of freedom. It hasn't even gone for its plan B for winter, mm. such as mask mandates and working from home, which is nowhere near as authoritarian as some of, you know, the measures being taken across Europe. I mean, we're not just talking about these kind of vaccine mandates. We're talking about, you know, new lockdowns in in the Netherlands and places like that, new restrictions in Belgium, all over the place, essentially. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it feels like a pretty low bar to say, well, we're not quite in Austria yet to, because of the <laughs> fact of how extreme um, the measures that are being enacted there are. But it is true that the, and this is why I get so frustrated with the small pocket of anti-vax sentiment that we have in the UK in comparison with other countries, it's not so bad, is that there is an unwillingness to amongst those people to realise that actually the means through which we have managed to succeed in comparison with other countries is through the success of the vaccine and indeed through the success of, you know, despite the fact that we've had many, many criticisms of the Conservative government over the course of this pandemic, the the, the feeling at least a slight bit of pressure to push back on whether it be the Labour Party or some uh, mainstream media commentators who say lockdown, lockdown, enforce and force in relation to um, vaccine mandates. You know, it, w- Boris Johnson's only got a shred of kind of belief in liberty left, but at least it's a shred <laughs> in comparison with other political leaders. And, you know, the, the reason it's not to kind of be all uh, enthusiastic about the vaccine just because uh, in a kind of anti-science way, because that we know that there are complications. Rob Lyons wrote on uh, for Spike this week about the nature of the way in which transmission rates are changing because of the Delta variant. But the point he really makes is that we have successfully rolled out the booster programme. 
Um, we are vaccinating. There's a there's a specific focus on vaccinating for a third time the elderly. You know, mm. sp- targeted specific measures that the people of the UK have responded quite well to, and therefore we're not in too bad a position. Yeah. And you just it's it's you know you feel solidarity with your fellow citizens across Europe because it's a real shame that governments in those other countries haven't handled it as well. And it also has to be said that you know these are ri- wealthy, rich countries like Germany. You know, places is where you don't expect to see this level of um, the potential for destruction, not just of civil liberties, but also loss of life. Mm. Because we also have to remember that unvaccinated people are, if they're over a certain age, still dying. And that's a real big problem. I mean, it's interesting as well, though, that the government almost can't uh, defend its own successful policy. Yeah. You see what I mean, they're very cagey about it. They always have to constantly talk about, you know, we're keeping everything under a review and that we might bring in further measures down the line. They won't even really want to rule out, you know, whenever they're put on the spot about what's going on in Austria or anywhere else, they really can't rule that out. Um, and I think that speaks to the politics of all of this, which is to be the most authoritarian is to be pursuing the correct policy. Yeah. That's basically what it's been like throughout this pandemic. And they can't even really talk that openly. Now, when we, the great unlocking, such as it was, happened, Chris Whitty spoke about the fact that, you know, we've got to get this exit wave that we're going to have out of the way in the summer when there's going to be the least pressure on the hospitals, knowing that because the mass of the population are vaccinated, it's much safer to allow that <laughs> level of um, infections to circulate. But even, you know, allowing for any kind of um, greater circulation of the virus was just seen as verboten, even though this yeah. was obviously the, the time in which to allow that to happen. So it, it feels like... At this point, because it was so fascinating that it's still gone down in history as the dangerous and unethical experiment, despite the fact that it's turned out to be a masterstroke, but they can't even kind of own that success, Mm. such as how, you know, the nature of this discussion has been, how much it tilts towards always more restrictions and doom and gloom in all those situations. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your keys in your car while you nip into the petrol station for a drink. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if you come back to see someone driving off with your car? The truth is, the internet is not as secure as you think. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, like the Wi-Fi in most cafes, hotels, or airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. This could be your passwords, your financial details, or anything you'd rather be kept behind lock and key. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone, just some cheap old bits of hardware, A smart 12-year-old can do it. And your data is very valuable. Hackers can make up to £1,000 per person by selling your personal information on the dark web. One reason to try ExpressVPN is that it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. This means hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's super secure. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. That might sound complicated, but it's actually very easy to use. You just fire up the app and click one button to get protected. And it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more. So you can stay secure on the go wherever you are. What could be easier? What I like most about ExpressVPN is that on top of all of the incredible security features, I can access some amazing content from other countries that would otherwise be blocked. For instance, I can access the content of any country's version of Netflix, and that means getting access to tons of TV and films that aren't normally available. But whatever I'm watching or doing, I feel reassured that my data is safe when I use ExpressVPN. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com spiked. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S. 
vpn.com slash spikes. And you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. So at the weekend, trans activists were protesting outside JK Rowling's house. It feels like in the last week or so in particular, the the vicious campaign against JK Rowling has really ramped up a notch. I mean, Tom, you've written about essentially the making of JK Rowling into a folk devil. <laughs> yeah, it was just another opportunity to sort of reflect on that. Because I think if you'd have told anyone like five or ten years ago that JK Rowling would become the most controversial cultural figure of our time. <laughs> They'd have been so bemused by that. This, you know, beloved children's author, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, inspired this generation of young people with a love of reading Harry Potter books and not much else as it turned out. But nevertheless, you know, this huge <laughs> cultural import and genuinely someone who on all other issues seems to have all of the correct opinions, shall we say, um, would become such of a hate figure. And as you say, it kind of escalated this week because the kind of online vitriol sort of became offline when mm. these three kind of actors slash trans activists showed up outside of her house. J.K. Rowling suggests that they kind of purposely displayed part of her address, which obviously is just an inv- could be an invitation for more protest, more agitation, and all the rest of it. And it's at time whenever this flares up, and it flares up every every couple of months, really. You always have to remind yourself. First of all, she's not. She doesn't talk about this issue all the time. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, the issue of ascent. And also the content of what she believes on this is the most kind of mild, generous, mm. um, sympathetic form of gender critical feminism, if you want to call it that, that you could possibly see. I mean, the most substantial statement she's ever made on this is that essay she published last year. Yeah. Where she talks ex- explicitly about the fact that as a survivor of domestic violence and, um, sexual assault, that her concern is women-only spaces, that she has endless sympathy and solidarity for trans women, particularly those who are targeted by male violence, etc., etc. And it's just on this particular issue, as well as the kind of destruction of womanhood as a category in um, because of extreme gender ideology. That's all she said. Mm. And that is a position that I think most people in this discussion can get on board with. And yet, if you ask any kind of right-thinking person why J.K. Rowling is in the crosshairs, but, oh, because she's a vicious transphobe. Yeah. And if you ask them for any examples of it, they'll just sort of stare into the distance because there aren't any. Mm. There's really not. And I think the fact that she's in this position is because of the fact that to be someone that prominent who refuses who refuses to comply with every dot and comma of this ideology is enough to turn you into this monster. Yeah. Um, but for so... In- but for doing and saying so incredibly little, it feels like. In, in some ways, she's kind of been turned into Voldemort. You know, she's the woman who can't be named. She she is not going to be appearing in this HBO um, reunion special of the first Harry Potter film. She's had her name removed from a house in a London primary school. I mean, it's what is all that about? It's 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 not even just people criticizing her. It's that they cannot even tolerate the presence of this beastly woman. <laughs> well, she got almost completely, I think completely wiped from the 20th anniversary celebrations. Um, you know, ungrateful little twerps like Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> and, and, and Watson. And you're not saying they never would have succeeded on their own. <laughs> yeah, great You know, failing to stand in solidarity with a woman who really, you know, through her work, I'm not the biggest fan of Harry Potter books, but, you know, through a considerable amount of work managed to make their careers. You know, there's a, there's, it's, you're right. She has become the person who can't be named. I mean, even actually there was a tweet that got put out, I think Julie Bindle put it out, of a a display in Barnes & Noble um, in America bookshop, which had a display of unproblematic wizarding books. So, you know, every <laughs> it, it's gotten to that ridiculous level. But the thing that I always think about is 
so much of the uh, of the uh, an ire given to Rowling is and people like women like her because it is mostly women um, is this idea of you just keep talking about women's spaces you're oppressing us you're not letting us talk about what we really need to talk about which is trans su- you know suicides of trans people and all that kind of stuff and yet the one thing everyone wants to talk about is J.K. Rowling you know why are they so obsessed with her why aren't they saying okay, you publish an essay on sex-based rights or whatever it is you want to do, and, and we don't care. We want to talk about resources or things like that. There has become an obsession, and I think it shows the superficiality of the discussion around um, gender and gender ideology because it isn't about material rights. It isn't about um, let's build more rape crisis centres that can fit all kinds of people in there. Let's not let's find out compromises and ways of doing things like this. Um, let's you know have more access to gender-neutral stuff if we want to. It's about saying, I don't like what you've said and what you've said affects your words, your your singular essay, your singular tweet affects the very nature of my being. Mm-hmm. And that's not rational. There's no way you can go with that. And it also leads to irrational acts like publishing someone's address online, which, you know, this whole thing of doxing gets thrown around all the time. And it's all, and, you know, people often say, see trans activists themselves online, the more vicious ones, complaining of themselves being doxed and having complaints to their employers. And when it comes to someone like Rowling, because she's a folk devil, no one cares. I mean, you've even had some quite high profile political commentators in the UK supporting the fact or at least uh, suggesting that it's not so bad that people Mm. have turned up at her address. How has that been allowed to happen? From lockdowns being reimposed across Europe and talk of compulsory vaccinations to cancel culture and the rise of wokeness, freedom is in really short supply right now. Sometimes it feels like the modern world has been turned upside down. But how do we get our ideas of what it means to live in a modern liberal democracy? To dig deeper into this question, I've been watching a programme called The Modern Political Tradition, Hobbes to Habermas, and you can stream it too on Wondrium. The programme is presented by the brilliant Professor Lawrence Cahoon, who takes you through hundreds of years of the ideas that have made and remade the world we know today. It covers the development of everything from nationalism and the first debates around capitalism in the 19th century, right up to the modern day with episodes on feminism, environmentalism and identity politics. Wondrium's curated library makes lifelong learning fun. Their engaging videos are full of mind-blowing content covering every topic you've ever wondered about. You can dive into documentaries, travel logs, tutorials and so much more. There's so much knowledge and insight to be gained from Wondrium. Why not start with the modern political tradition and then check out the thousands of other videos Wondrium has to offer. I have an amazing offer to get you started as well, a free trial of unlimited access. To get this offer, sign up now through our special URL, wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Wondrium is my favorite streaming service. I get to learn about whatever I want, whenever I want. And you can too by going to wondrium.com slash spiked. We should uh, return to the cricket racism scandal since there's been quite a lot of developments Mm. uh, since we talked about this last week. Uh, Most recently, we've heard that Michael Vaughan is no longer going to be a part of the BBC's coverage of um, the Ashes because he was named in the the original Yorkshire racism report. 
Tom, what have you made of this? Yeah, so it's interesting. So this this has been rumbling on since this scandal kind of broke again. So Michael Vaughan has been accused by Azim Rafiq of uh, making a racist statement towards him and three other South Asian players um, during a Yorkshire cricket game. I think the exact quote is something, there's too many of you lot and we've got to do something about it uh, or something to this effect. Um, Rafiq and two others have corroborated that they say that this happened. Um, one of the other people who it was allegedly aimed at, Ajmal Shazad, has said that he doesn't remember it taking place. But nevertheless, it's essentially a, like, unless you were there, you can't know mm. what the truth of And he happened. denies any uh, Precisely. And he has from the beginning. So he was summoned to give to appear before this in, this independent investigation at Yorkshire County Crick- Cricket Club the night before he was due to appear. He was presented with these allegations um, and it later went public with them. And as you say, just completely rejects it, says he's never faced a complaint like this during all of his time in cricket, completely protested innocence. And yet, of course, first of all, I think he was taken off of his particular radio show, I think, in the wake of these allegations. And now, as you say, he's not going to be on Test Match Special. Also, BT are talking about what they're going to do because mm-hmm. he is going to be part of the commentary team for Fox Australia, I believe it is. And they were due to just take their feed. Yeah. Um, and now they're working out whether or not they're just going to take the video and then have their own commentary team. So he has kind of been unpersoned in this respect. And it raises a really difficult question. Um, first of all, which is to say, is he just guilty until proven innocent? Yeah. And if that is the case, don't we recognise that unless someone happened to have taped this <laughs> this altercation of 10 years ago, we will never actually know. So he is just damned by accusation alone. And in this whole kind of era in which trial by media um, or via kind of, of cancel culture is so rampant, is it basically that as, as soon as any seemingly credible accusation is made that's it that's just yeah. game over no, none of us can know what actually happened but it seems to me to be a pretty terrifying precedent to set and the other thing is the kind of interesting double standards because which, which brendan wrote about at the tail end of last week which is obviously azim rafiq has since apologized and admitted to making anti-semitic comments yeah uh, online i think it was in private messages um and so you have a situation where again that's something which potentially won't necessarily follow him around for life now in the same way that this just accusation will in the case of Vaughan. It's just that the the ethics of it are so mixed up and it just strikes me that this is an incredibly alarming precedent to set whereby someone can lose their positions, lose their livelihood on the basis of accusation alone. There's a reason in a legal context why you can't do that. Surely in a kind of social cultural context, we can't allow that either, but it seems to be the road that we're heading there. Ella? It is an incredibly complicated picture because as we discussed last week, the uh, Azim Rafiq and others' reports of an independent investigation into racism at the Yorkshire Cricket Club was pretty damning, further complicated by the fact that they would refuse to release the report for Mm. quite a long period of time, refuse to allow Azim Rafiq to see it. And then when it was revealed, it was, you know, from the top to the bottom, people who were very high up in the club had repeatedly made racist comments. And there was, you know, there was an undeniable um, evidence of racism there. But whether or not this one guy Michael Vaughan, his fellow player, made that one comment mm. is a separate issue. Yeah. And, you know, Tom mentioned the um, Rafiq's anti-Semitic comments. There's also been this like, really rather cringy, um, embarrassing evidence come out or uh, accusation come out that he sent some um, sort of slightly pervy, slightly old man-ish um, comments to a teenager on a plane on WhatsApp. So, and he was also fined when he was younger at the club for calling someone a wanker. He sounds like a bit of a 
bit of a bollocks basically <laughs> and uh, and the important point was that he was allowed to apologize and he was forgiven i mean the important point to make was that the notice that the board of jewish deputies responded to rafiq's apology about his anti-semitic remarks and they said now you know how painful racism can be um and this is a good move you know this is where we how we move forward we apologize and we move forward and it really calls into question the whole nature of cancel culture because even if Vaughan did say this and mm-hmm. it's a you know who who knows no one was there and as Tom says unless someone had a recorder in their pocket we'll never know uh, even if he did say this and he had come out and apologised like Rafiq would that have been enough mm-hmm. and we're getting towards a position in society where apologies uh, and the whole idea of rehabilitation and forgiveness and moving on with our lives and the ability for people to change from teenagehood and young adulthood to to their later lives has gone out the window. And that's a very dangerous precedent to set. And it's a, ve- it's a very depressing precedent to set. I, I think the Ollie Robinson case that we've talked mm, about previously yeah. sort of shows that you can be incredibly apologetic in that case about saying some, some stupid things and making some stupid jokes when you're a teenager and yet you still have to be put through the ringer, yeah. such is you know, the nature of these things. Well, Let's talk about an even more absurd and bizarre uh, case of, I guess, near cancellation, probably rather than full cancellation. Uh, Nadia Murad uh, is a spokeswoman for uh, the Yazidi people. She was essentially a survivor of the Yazidi genocide. Her family were killed by ISIS. She was held as a sex slave by ISIS. And yet she has bizarrely become a target of cancel culture. I mean, Tom, do you want to explain this? Yeah, it's a quite a strange story. story. Um, but I think there's there's something in it that tells us something about the general mood in some ways. So this is a story out of Toronto in Canada. There was this kind of book club initiative, which was set up by a local entrepreneur for schoolgirls in particular. Um, so there'd be events with authors discussing their books. And uh, Nadia Murad was one of these people, her book, her memoir about her experiences, you know, the horrendous barbarism that she suffered and witnessed as ISIS were sweeping through northern Iraq. And one, the superintendent at the Toronto District School Board uh, essentially sent a message to the person who is running this initiative, suggested that uh, students wouldn't be taking part um, because of concerns that this particular book and this particular discussion could foster Islamophobia. That's how the Telegraph report put it. And you just think, what kind of mind jumps to that yeah. <laughs> I think it's worth thinking about now it's worth saying that since then uh, the school board has distanced themselves from this position they said that they're reviewing it that despite being the superintendent this woman didn't speak for the school board but that slippage i think is quite telling because yeah. there's, there's something about it whilst it's extreme tells us because uh, there is something about um dis- even just discussing even someone's personal lived experiences in this case as you were saying essentially a rape survivor of islamist barbarism which makes certain people in the west deeply uncomfortable just even discussing it yeah and it the idea of someone sat in an office looking over the details of this particular event and think oh that could be a bit dodgy that could be yeah. a bit controversial i think speaks to the fact that political correctness whatever we want to call this it doesn't just like rot your brain it rots your soul as well it leads some people into a situation where they need to distance themselves or kind of hush over or be overly sensitive about discussions of islamist barbarism for fear of the message it might send um i mean does she genuinely think that if her the, the schoolgirls in her care w- went along to this event they would be inspired with a hatred of all muslims because yeah. of what they heard <laughs> in that in terms of that particular discussion but we see this time and again. I mean, the one, the example I always go back to is um, after the 2017 Manchester Arena bombings, Lucy Powell, a Manchester MP, was on television. Andrew Neil, then at the BBC, said, you know, 
are you aware of there being this problem with Islamist radicalization in parts of Manchester? And her response was to say, I don't think this is the time to get into all that sort of thing. And of course, this has got nothing to do with Islam. And you think, why can't we discuss this? And then I think that it's just the heartlessness of doing that and snubbing someone mm. like this, as you say, who was not only a, a victim, but also very courageous in terms of becoming a spokesman for uh, the Yazidis and their plight. It just, it boggles the mind. But there's, even though it's an extreme example, I think there's a piece of it that we can recognise more generally in society when it comes to these issues. Do you think there's something in, in, the fra- in the phrase Islamophobia that creates this problem? I mean, it just seems to ha- be so broad, you know, no longer referring to actual prejudice against Muslims, but anything that have, might have the slightest or even hint towards uh, Islam which, you know, is obviously very distinct from this barbarism. Well, it's just become criticism of Islam. Mm. It's become Islamophobia. And I mean, I know that, you know, there, there, are, there are real Islamophobes out there who really genuinely have um, prejudice against Muslims. But in general, the, their, you know, British society is, pre- despite the fact of what everyone sort of panics about, is pretty tolerant towards religion and particularly is tolerant towards um, Islam after any of these attacks, actually, despite the fact that Labour MPs, you know, get their... Knickers in a twist, there is always a massive outsurge of people saying we stand in solidarity with um, our Muslim brothers and sisters. We know that in particular when it comes to ISIS, mm. the vast majority of um, people that ISIS kill in their own in the countries that they operate are Muslims. And so there's, you know, it, there isn't the kind of panic around this doesn't quite meet the reality with how ordinary people feel. But it, you know, it just something about this case tells you about the sort of hierarchy of offence that exists mm. because. The, the idea that you could have a woman who has gone through such horror in relation to rape and murder, experiencing, uh, witnessing the murder of her family and being raped multiple times herself, who then is able to come and talk to young girls about being a survivor and about what that means, and is then basically gaslighted in effect, because what, what that superintendent was suggesting is that your story is really actually going to, rather than inspire girls to be, you know, to think about events in life and also and how to be um, braver and tougher and a survivor or whatever it is she's the idea she's putting forward that actually you're going to bring out the nastiness in people I mean that's a horrendous mm. thing for to, a horrendous accusation to be level at her and also even if she was coming out with huge criticisms of Islam not Islamism but of Islam even if she had something interesting to say there and something important to say there why can't those young girls handle that what kind of schooling are you? What is the point of doing a book club if you're only going to do books that you think, are, you know, reassert and reaffirm your own liberal prejudices? With and you know, we know that Toronto, and Canada, is a particularly bad place <laughs> for this kind of stuff. But it really is depressing. Women like Nadia Murad should be held up as actually in a in a world that's interested in empowering women should be held up as figures who are worth listening to and who are worth celebrating not just because of the hor- horror that she's been through but because of her insistence on talking about her how she survived and the importance of these ED people and what she's been through you know as a figure of strength mm. in contrast with the superintendent who looks like a complete coward who's unable to talk about things it's, it's so striking as well because like, something like the Yazidi genocide, a lot of people genuinely don't remember that took place. Yeah. Like in the West in general, it's something which has been completely forgotten about. Um, and if you think even domestically, obviously it was David Amos's um, funeral this week. And the reflex that we've seen in, re- in the wake of that killing, which is an alleged suspected Islamist murder, 
is was again was just to kind of dampen down discussion of the threat this appeared to be, or to just change the subject. So it's Mark Francois and the abuse he gets on the internet or whatever. It does seem at some point that various Western societies, including our own, have come to the conclusion that talking about Islamist terrorism is almost as bad as the terrorism itself. Mm -hmm. That any kind of constructive, measured even discussion that we should be having, an angry discussion certainly, but certainly one that shouldn't lapse into any kind of bigotry. No one is interested in doing that, certainly anyone in the mainstream. That even having that discussion is almost more dangerous and the reason they believe that is because they have fear and loathing of ordinary people. And they seem, whether they realise it or not, to make this conflation between ordinary law-abiding Muslims and, and Islamist extremists themselves. Yeah. They seem to make that conflation in their head. How did we get into that position? Because it seems to me that any society which seems to make that calculation has morally lost the plot. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.